This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Hey, really quick before we start the show, I want to let you know about a new addition to our already amazing lineup for the How I Built This Summit in October, sponsored by American Express. Eric Ryan and Adam Lowry, the founders of Method Cleaning Products, will be joining me for conversations on the main stage, along with founders of companies like Airbnb, Stitch Fix, Lyft, and many others. You can get your tickets and see the full list at npr.org summit. So April 2008, you launch Minted, and and you're like, the door's open, the shingle's out, you're excited, you pop the champagne corks, and... Nothing. Nothing. Absolute dead silence. No orders. There was not a sale to be had. It was terrifying and horrible. Horrible. And we almost, I really contemplated that moment, this is a failure, we need to shut this business down, yeah. we need to give whatever remains of the money back to investors, because it's a, it's a total failure. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Maryam Nafisi turned her online stationery store into one of the biggest platforms for emerging artists on the internet, and in the process, transformed the business of personalized stationery. Back at the end of the 1980s, at age 13, I was getting ready to officially become a man. This is the age at which, according to Jewish tradition, boys enter manhood and they have a bar mitzvah. There's a big party. You get hoisted up on a chair and paraded around a dance floor. You serve salmon or chicken. You get the idea. Anyway, about eight or nine months before the big day, I remember going with my mom to a stationery store to look at tons of invitation samples. We checked out fonts, paper stock, colors. We ended up going with burgundy, black, and gold. She put down a deposit. It was a long process. Now, compare that to when my son was born 25 years later. I went online. I uploaded a photo of his pink little face. I picked a layout, uploaded my address book, put in my credit card details, and bam, within like three days, everyone on my list received a beautiful birth announcement in the mail. So thank you, Internet. Now, this is the revolution Maryam Nafisi tapped into in 2007 when she launched Minted. But what differentiates Minted is a major pivot Miriam would make early on. Because instead of just selling personalized holiday cards or wedding invitations, Miriam actually built a platform for artists to showcase their work. And she did this by tapping into another revolution that was happening in the early 2000s, crowdsourcing. But before Minted was even a thought in Miriam's mind, she had ridden the dot-com wave of the late 90s with a company called Eve. Eve was a website that sold cosmetics. And at a very young age, Miriam and her partner managed to sell it before the dot-com bust. And the thing about Miriam is that despite launching two successful companies, she never intended to become an entrepreneur. Maryam grew up in Tehran. Her mom was an artist originally from China. Her dad was an economist from Iran. And toward the end of the 1970s, as the situation in Iran became more volatile, the family decided to pack up and flee. 
you know, the environment was unstable and we did not, you know, it was very unclear what was going to happen. I, I think that we were, we were really worried about what would happen to us um, in the new regime. So, you know, I guess my dad thinks of us as refugees, which is when you leave unwillingly. Hmm. Uh, when we got here, it was the, you know, soon after we arrived, the hostage crisis started. Yeah. And that was not a great time to be Iranian in the U.S. Um, and being a kid in school, that was really difficult. I basically really honestly tried to Americanize and fit in as fast as I possibly could. Um, I really wanted to integrate. And I, when I came here, I actually had a pretty, I had a strong accent. I was two years younger than everybody in my class all the way through basically school. I was hmm. two years younger, so I was small, <laughs> small, young, mm -hmm. and foreign. <laughs> and uh, I just, I really wanted to be American. And, and honestly, I sort of feel like the whole time, even when I was in Iran, I felt like a little bit of a, you know, an outsider there as well. So you're always, if you're like me and you're, you move around a lot and you're of mixed cultures, you're, you're never really going to feel like you belong to one place or one culture, right? You're always going to feel a little bit like the outsider who's traveling through time and space as, as an observer. Were you a pretty good student as a kid? I was. I was, I was that nerdy girl who <laughs> sat at the front of the class with glasses on, who everybody wanted to get help from with their homework. Quiet? I would say quiet and, and pretty competitive, hmm. very competitive, yeah. And did, I mean, as a kid, did you have any real interest in like business or entrepreneurial stuff? No, my, my parents, I come from a completely non-business family. Hmm. And honestly, you know, with the Iranian upper class, uh, you know, you, did, you didn't, you, they didn't set up business as sort of the vaunted thing that one goes into. Things that were in, in my family very... Uh, admired were things like being a doctor, going into foreign service in the government, for example. So when I was growing up in Chevy Chase, not once did business cross my mind. I was thinking law. Huh. And I, 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 I do remember my mom on the first day of first grade sort of bending down to, to say to me something. And she said, I want you to go to school and I want you to beat all of the boys. So you uh, you eventually went on to uh, to call to Williams College um, in in Massachusetts. What did you What did you uh, do after you you graduated? So that's where I did do the the, the expected thing. And some of my fellow classmates who were in economics and poli sci were interviewing for jobs on Wall Street and in management consulting firms. And those firms had these huge processes, on-campus recruiting processes. So I just, hmm. so I went to Goldman Sachs as a financial analyst in their investment banking division. And you loved it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't say that I love being a financial analyst. That It is sort of like loving boot camp. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you, you end up working very, very long hours. Um, but I will say it's a great training ground as to what work ethic really means. Because you, you can't imagine working harder than, than what you actually physically pull off as a financial analyst. You were so. like 22 or 21, and you probably moving to New York, and and all you were doing was working. All I was doing was working. So I was 20, and I was I was eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the office. And I, I was actually selling. I had a desk on the bond trading floor, and I was selling bonds as well as doing working with clients. So before I could actually drink, I was selling bonds. So before I could drink legally. <laughs> so you, I, I guess you were doing this for uh, a couple of years. And then at a certain point, you 
decide to go to to business school, were you were you thinking in your mind like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to business school and then I'm going to start a business? Um, so what happened was I at first was just thinking about going to business school because I'd actually done investment banking and management consulting and. I thought perhaps I would want to go into consumer products or retail, hmm. but I didn't get into Stanford the first time I applied for, for business school. And so I decided to take a year off and try to boost my resume with something that was a little bit more differentiated and went to work for an entrepreneur, Maurice Werdegar, in the restaurant business, actually, hmm. who was a Stanford grad, and he became a key mentor to me. Um, and he, he was starting a chain of restaurants in Palo Alto and all over California. But I was so inspired and bitten with the entrepreneurial bug during that experience. And Maurice importantly said to me, you really, you really could do this. You could start a company. I think you should really consider it. Because we would spend hours talking about entrepreneurial ideas, venture capital, and just get becoming completely obsessed to the point where I thought, why go to business school? A real entrepreneur doesn't go to business yeah, school. Right. I, I, yeah. I'm not even interested anymore. And at that point, I thought, all right, I'll apply one more time because my boyfriend, who became my husband, was applying. I thought, all right, let's. I'll throw my hat in the ring one more time. And, and then Stanford accepted me. So you go to business school. Yeah. By the way, I, I read that you, while at business school, you published... <laughs> You published a book called, I'm going to read the title of this book called, The Fast Track, The Insider's Guide to Winning Jobs in Management Consulting, Investment Banking, and Securities Trading, a book that has sold like 50,000 copies. That's very precocious. I mean, that's like super, like, that is, it's like overdrive precocious. <laughs> yeah, so the reason I did that was I thought, well, one, it's a market need. Yeah. I know how to fill this need. I have done so much recruiting at the at the two firms I was working at that I knew that there was a need for the book. Mm. And I wanted to experiment to see what would happen if you create a consumer product that you know that there's a need for. Can you can I actually put a product together and sell it? And I also thought it would be um, a good project to demonstrate that I had some, I guess, chutzpah to be able to get into yeah. Stanford. So yeah. I, I sold the book, right? And then I, I knew I'd sold the book to a publisher, Broadway, before I as I was applying, and I think that helped differentiate me as well. Hmm. And then I used the, the advance to pay for business school, which I needed to pay for. Yeah. So it was a way to pay for school. So at Stanford, did you did you actually have a, a business plan or idea that you wanted to put together? Well, I started in the second half of the year. So first of all, second half of the year at Stanford, I was taking every entrepreneurial class I could and trying desperately to get into the best classes. I was auditing some, sitting on the floor of others, um, and then working on plans. And one thing I knew that, that I wanted to do was find a partner that I really liked. So I called a friend of mine in New York and tried to convince her to come to San Francisco and start something with me. And we had two ideas. And she said, well, I'll start a company if we if we pursue my idea, which is selling cosmetics online. Hmm. And, I, and mine was to do market research online, sort of like a survey monkey. What was her name? Uh, Varsha Rao. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to pursue cosmetics because I thought, sure, why not? I, I want to work with you and I need to get to convince you to come out, so let's work on cosmetics. I, I've used cosmetics before. We can figure this out. <laughs> um, and so I convinced her to move out. To come to San Francisco to help you start a an online co cosmetics company. Mm-hmm, yeah. And she slept on the couch in our studio apartment, or our one-bedroom apartment. And in the morning, we'd get up in our pajamas so we wouldn't wake up my my now husband, and we'd sit on the couch and call all the New York cosmetics companies from our couch in our pajamas. And 
convince people to sign on with us to distribute on this thing called the internet, which most of people had were extremely suspicious of. So that was a adventure. So the business was going to be just a, an online store selling all kinds of cosmetics to every different brand. That was the idea. That's right. So the idea was to create a replenishment brand for cosmetics. What's a we re- thought skincare, mm. meaning things that you want to replenish, skincare, hair care, you know your favorite and you just want to replenish it. Because at that point, everybody was telling us nobody was going to buy cosmetics online that they'd never tried. Yeah. And moreover, women don't shop online. Right. That's a fact. Yes. Women don't shop online and nobody will ever buy makeup online. And and I'll just say in my career that has happened repeatedly, mm. right, where people will say, no one's going to buy paper online. Yeah, who's going to no buy that? No one's going to buy shoes online. No. no one is going to do this. No one is going to do that. Glasses? No one's going to buy that online. Yeah. So, I mean, if you hear that as an entrepreneur, you've got to discount that massively because yeah. trust me, it's been everything. All of those things have been said. So when you approach these small brands, did, did any of them, I mean, why didn't any of them just say, uh, well, we'll just sell them online ourselves? Why were they attracted to what you guys were offering them? Well, in those days, there was no, you know, solution that would easily allow a small brand to actually mm. sell online. I know it sounds crazy, but there was no solution. And so, first of all, nobody wanted to sell online. We would have to go in there and convince them that the internet was not bad. We, we also actually hired a, a woman from Macy's who was formerly from at Macy's as a big manager of the cosmetics business. And she ended up being our river guide, making introductions for us, helping advise us. You know, if you go to Chanel, wear the Chanel nail polish, uh-huh. for example. <laughs> that, was, that one stood out. Um, they'll recognize their colors on you. So you and Varsha, and by the way, what's your husband's name? Michael. Michael, okay, so you, Varsha, and Michael are living in this apartment. Uh, you and Varsha decide you are going to start an online cosmetic store, which today doesn't sound like that big, big of a deal, but I, I guess in 1998, that was kind of revolutionary. Right. Nobody was selling cosmetics online. Nobody. Uh, can you believe literally no one? Insane. And so, yeah. I wish I had a time machine. And, I could go back and start a cosmetics company. Yeah. And then, you know, to, to start a company, you know, I basically took a white sheet of paper out and started drawing a website on a white sheet of paper in my kitchen, along with another sheet of paper where I was trying to come up with metrics as to what I would call different things like people coming to your site and what would you call the metric where someone converts into a customer. Mm. And everything had to be invented literally for the first time. Then we went through a really insane year. So I graduated in 1998. We um, immediately started fundraising. But was was it easy to raise money in 1998? 1998, it was... Getting pretty easy. 1999 was crazy. Just because it was the dot-com boom. It was so. boom. It was starting to boom. Yeah, it wasn't the height, but it was getting there. Yeah. And I sensed that there was an opportunity for, for me to get capital, even though I was 27 and uh, had no work experience, really. And people, liked your, so, and people liked your pitch. They loved our pitch. They loved us, and they loved our pitch, and we had a lot of interest. And we ended up in an interesting situation where... Um, we, we did experience some collusion, actually. This was a really difficult part of that journey where in the old days, you could have VC firms gang up. If they could find out who else you were talking to, they could collude and basically work with each other and partner together to, to drive your price down, your valuation down. Huh. And I had heard about it at business school in a lecture, and it, sure enough, it happened, it happened to me. So we had a couple term sheets come in for our first round huh. of financing. 
and it was Idealab plus a couple of others. But two of the firms decided, they first they found out about who we were talking to and they decided to collude. So we signed a term sheet with one player and they were valuing us straight out of the blocks just as people and with this PowerPoint presentation at $6 million. Right, which sounds pretty good, right? Yes, it was fantastic. We were very happy. We It was a uh, prestigious firm. Yeah. They had an office on Sand Hill, Sand Hill Road. But they turned around and actually decided to partner with another firm. And they called us and said, we're sorry. This is now their deal. The terms are changing. And the terms now became, we need you to move cities to where this other firm is. We're going to bring the valuation down to $4 million. And it was a collusion, straight, Wait, like a textbook collusion. Hold on. This is like Darth Vader territory. Like the terms have oh, yeah. changed. It's just explain to me how that worked, how that was mm-hmm. like allowed to happen. Yeah. So it's a term sheet is unfortunately not binding. It's a indication of interest that's really a buildup of good faith. Hmm. And so you, you could do it and get away with it. Absolutely. Hmm. And it happened a lot in, you know, in that, the ni- late 90s when you didn't have online transparency and, and reputation where other entrepreneurs could learn about what people were doing to you. And so there was no consequence. And so you could become, as an investor, much more abusive. So what did you what did you tell them when, when they said that? They said, it's four million bucks and here you go. <laughs> so what's fascinating is we had not yet called Bill Gross to tell him that we were turning him down. Bill Gross was the guy who- At Idea Lab. Right. In Pasadena. So we we had had this third term sheet and we were planning to call him, but we just didn't have the time. We hadn't had the time to call him. So instead of calling him to turn him down, we put the phone down with the other group. We picked the phone up. We called Bill Gross and we said, we're signing your term sheet. We'll be in Pasadena tomorrow morning. And we exited the side door. Okay. So you you raised some money. It's 98. How long between the time that you went to investors for seed money and you actually launched the website? Um, we took the money in in 1998 and we launched in July 1999. Huh. And what describe... And so, by the way, we should mention, the, what the name of the website was? I'm sorry, the name was eve.com and... Like Adam, but Eve. And Eve, yes. So when you launched Eve.com, um, did, did people find out about it right away? How, how did people even know where to go and how to look for it? Yeah, so we, we ended up with a massive amount of press coverage, and we actually had a lot of money for marketing, and we were encouraged to spend it. Because at that time, it was land grab time. Everybody was trying to grab market share as fast as they could. We launched in, and there were four competitors who launched right behind us. And one of the big things I learned to do was just completely block out any fear or notion of the competitors, keep your head down. Mm. And so the minute we opened the doors, the, the, literally the product started selling ridiculously quickly. Wow. I mean, we did $10 million in sales in our first year. Amazing. Yeah, it's a very, it was a runaway year given that it was our first year of business. That must have been amazing. You were so young and you were like yeah. huge. But we were, lest anyone be confused here, we were working till 10 o'clock at night every night in the office. You know, this is where the investment banking background came yeah. in handy because we were trained to operate like that. And, you know, my husband would come meet me at the office at 10 and we'd have dinner at 10.30 every night. So you, uh, in 2000, like a year and a half after you launch, you guys get an offer and you sell this company. Eve.com is sold for $110 million dollars. Uh, I mean, I, I don't even want to ask the question why. I mean, it seems obvious. It was a lot of money, and 
a no-brainer, I guess, right? Right. So, you know, this was a time when we were trying to raise a Series D, and honestly, the market was starting to get a little skeptical. You know, when are you going to make a profit? What's going on? And so I start for the first time in that for the 14 to 16-month period, I started realizing that getting the next round was going to be difficult, and we could take have safe harbor for the company inside another company. I thought it would probably be a wise move, and we closed it in April 2000. Two weeks later, the market started crashing. Wow. So you made it yeah. just like by the skin of your teeth. Yeah. We, we Yes. <laughs> we had the foot in the door as the door was closing. Do, do you... Do you, were there other people in your position in the industry who maybe didn't have as good timing as you guys did who were, I don't know, maybe resentful of, of your luck or your, your foresight? I think there were a lot of cases where people were convinced by investors or convinced themselves to keep going and wait for the public exit. Mm-hmm. Because clearly at that point, everybody was in, everybody was enamored of the IPO. And I do think people were resentful of us for this, and and they considered it lucky versus any type of hard work or intuition or anything else. Mm. And that that was unfortunate because we worked our butts off yeah. to build this business. I mean, we were working. I, I basically lived at the office during this time. I never left. Um, so um, we built a pretty good business in a year. It was ten million dollars in our first year. Yet, yes, people were, I think were very resentful that we had mm. sold at the right time. So did you just like go to Hawaii and like kick it and drink pina coladas? Uh, I did take a year off <laughs> and my husband and I traveled around. Right. It's true. But about two months into it, I, got, I was absolutely miserable. I felt like I was missing out on what was happening. And, huh. and, 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 and fundamentally, there was a perception that we got lucky with Eve.com. And I had this feeling that, you know, that, that saying once you're lucky, twice you're good. I wanted to see if I was actually good or not, you know? Hmm. And so I think I needed to prove to myself that I could do it again. In just a moment, how Maryam got into the stationary business and almost abandoned it right before stumbling on an idea that would transform the entire industry. Stay with us. You're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, helping to protect those on the front lines every day. As the father of a healthcare worker, 3M employee Chris understood how important it was for his daughter and nurses like her to be protected during COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, he worked hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots. Hear his story at 3M.com slash improvinglives. 3M Science, Applied to Life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave, he worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. 
Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2002, and after a break from work, Miriam Nafisi decides to get back in the game. And it turns out the body shop wants to create an e-commerce division. And so they ask Miriam to run it. But after a few years working for a big company, Miriam starts getting that entrepreneurial itch once again. When you have entrepreneurial tendencies, sometimes you'll see something that you can't resist. And I, I, saw, I saw a change in what consumers were willing and excited about consuming. And so, for example, bloggers were starting to emerge that were disrupting uh, journalists at, at really established institutions. Mm-hmm. And consumers were willing to read them over those established institutions. And there was great talent coming to the fore. And so I was thinking to myself that perhaps in product design, there would be a similar opportunity, that you could find talented designers that uh, people would rather buy than the not talented designers. So I was I started getting really interested in the idea of having design competitions and this idea of crowdsourcing. Hmm. And so I decided to take stationery, which was an interesting model for me, and mash it up with this kind of experimental idea, which was crowdsourcing. And and at that time, like, if you met a a friend at a coffee shop and and they said, uh, hey, you know, what are you working on? You would say, I'm working on this this business that's going to do what? Like, what would you say? At that point, I would have said, we're going to sell stationery online. Hmm. Which sounds sounds pretty clear. Yep. And it was one foot back in the old world of just take the brands, consolidate them online, mm-hmm. and sell them. Yep. There was this slightly embarrassing idea I had, which was to run a design competition around the side and crowdsource designs that weren't available through the established stationary brands. And I was going to do that on the side. In other words, you ha- you said, I'm going to have a site that sells stationery, and then on the side, we're going to run, like, design competitions, and uh, and maybe we can mm-hmm. d- d- develop stationery based on the winner of that design competition. That's right. I got exactly. You. Okay. All right. So the idea was focused around stationary retail, and it had fantastic economics associated with it, good margins. It was an inherently viral product mm-hmm. because your name is on the back of the card, your, your company name. But the shopping experience offline was pretty archaic. You'd go to a store. There'd be a piece of paper you'd fill out to order some custom cards. They'd have to fax it in to the supplier. It was an archaic, slow, and really inconvenient process. And I thought, in my opinion, the design could be improved greatly. And that gave me an opening for crowdsourcing on the one hand. On the other hand, I was a little bit, honestly, a little bit risk-averse, and I thought that I did not want to raise venture capital again because I had had some bumpy experiences in the first in the first go round. So I thought I need to find a business model to apply this idea to that is very very cash flow positive and doesn't require a lot of cash. And I'm going to run it as a cash flow business. Huh. In um, other words, a business that could f- just self fund, right? Because of the revenue. That's right. Yeah. So. You didn't want to have to raise a lot of money, but you still had to raise some money, right, to get this off the ground. Right. So at this point, I was going to friends, Mm -hmm. and because I had successfully sold Eve, they were willing to listen. And so I was actually able to raise a pretty big angel round of $2.5 million, which is big for an angel round. So you decided you weren't even going to go to VCs initially. That's right. At this point, I wanted much more control. I decided not to have a co-founder from the outset. And so I put the plan together. And what I found was many of 
My friends were a little bit, they were very, very supportive, incredibly supportive, but they were all a little bit wary of crowdsourcing because it was not a tried and true model at this point. What was tried and true was e-commerce 1.0, which is take all the brand names, put them online, and provide convenient access online. Yeah. So that's what I did. I signed up all these stationary brands and I put them online. And then in the, in, the, in the background, I hired a coder who was in college in Portland and I would work at night on the competition structure, which was my real passion, which was to try to crowdsource the content. So you raise about $2.5 million in angel funding and you um, are ready to launch this site uh, which is going to sell stationery. By the way, how many people did you hire? Did you bring aboard to help you launch it? To launch Minted, I had virtually no one. Um, there were maybe five of us, something like that. And I, that's when I raised, uh, I finished the angel round. We sublet a little bit of space in Jackson Square. And we started with just a few people hmm. first year. And who built the website? How did you do that? So we spent almost all the two and a half million on an in-house team who came on board, an engineer. And the key challenge was how to render the customization of your stationery online. That was, and that was, so that wasn't something we could buy off the shelf from anyone. So we had to build it ourselves. In other words, just to be clear, a way to be able to see what your stationery would look like. That's right. So our engineers built a way to see your customized text appear on the screen mm. in inside your stationary design and that you couldn't buy from any other technology company. So I spent most of the two and a half million dollars I raised going around signing up all these exclusives with stationary brands that you would see at a papyrus store, for example. You, you see them, they've already gotten distribution. They're well-known wedding brands, stationary brands. I spent most of the time and the money doing that and then I just couldn't let go of this other thing that was really risky and unproven, which was to have a design competition. And I really, really wanted to let myself do that, but I just couldn't let myself do it. It was this this, this tear. So at night, I worked with a college student who I found on Rent a Coder, which is embarrassing to admit. And we, we worked on this at night. After everyone admitted went home, I would build the competition structure with this guy. And um, I really wanted to do that full time, but I just I just didn't let myself. So April 2008, you launch Minted, and and you're like, the door's open, the shingle's out, you're excited, you pop the champagne corks, and... Nothing. Nothing. Absolute dead silence. No orders. There was not a sale to be had. It was terrifying and horrible. Horrible. With Eve, we we opened the doors, and the makeup was just flying out from day one. I mean, it was, it was this massive amount of sales. Here, there was not one thing sold in the first 30 days, not one sale. Oof. And we almost, I really contemplated that moment. This is a failure. We need to shut this business down. Yeah. We need to give whatever remains of the money back to investors because it's a, it's a total failure. Hmm. Did, did you at least have like positive buzz around it or, or anything like that? We had a really negative article from TechCrunch. What did it say? Terrible idea. This person's failed before. Wow. I think that they didn't really even understand that we had, you know, it's successfully sold the company for as much money as we did. You mean Eve.com? Yes. So they just made some assumptions and had just a mm. terrible, uh, f- like that was our, our freshman, our debut. And so so, the, so what happened was, and this is what was really fascinating when you look back on it, is we just didn't have enough data. And so what happened was we didn't have enough traffic to really 
assess whether we were successful or not because nobody nobody knew about us and so nobody was coming. And then when they did come, what they were buying were the t- it was a tiny little crowdsource selection that I mentioned to you mm-hmm. that was my little personal secret hobby passion. Explain explain how that worked for for a moment. Yeah. So so when we opened our doors in April, we had our very first design competition for what people call save the date cards that people send oh, out yeah. when you're about to get married. Yeah, yeah. And and we had very few entries. And I think what would happen is we picked something like sixty six cards out of that competition based on voting. So the way that Minted works is everything is submitted to us via a design competition. We picked about 66 designs and we launched those, but we had hundreds, if not actually really thousands of SKUs that we were carrying from established stationary brands that we launched at the same that time. That already said save the date. That already said the save the date or wedding. It, it was all all sorts of things, wedding mm-hmm. invitations, other things that people provide. And we launched all of that stationary, wedding stationary product online. And then just our little tiny collection of 66 crowdsourced save the date cards. What was really different is that immediately the submissions that were coming in were breaking a lot of barriers and a lot of molds that have been assumed about that category of product. For example, people started putting photos on them. And I remember our printer, who we signed up to do this tiny little bit of business, said mm-hmm. to us, you know what? In our industry, people don't put photos on Save the Day cards, Mariam. They, hmm. don't, they don't do that. I said, I, I understand, but that's what's actually being submitted and that's what's winning. Huh. So we're going to sell them. Yeah. So what happened was within a couple of months, we started getting, let's say, one order a day. Seriously, one order a day, maybe by June. And then, you know, a month after that, it went to two orders a day, maybe three orders a day. Still nothing to write home about. And, and, and you were probably not, you're running out of cash. I can't, I can't. Absolutely. Yeah. Our runway at this point is running out. Our conversion rate, which is a critical metric that e-commerce companies mm-hmm. use to determine success, was something like 0.1%, meaning out of all the people who come, 0.1% buy. And that is really, really low. So you're in trouble. Like, I'm getting nervous. Yes. yes. And we have, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars left in the bank. Um, but then we started seeing the tiny sign of life. And I thought, well, maybe what I can do is take some capital and at least save this business just to recoup the initial investment. And that's it. <laughs> so um, my good friend and angel, one of my really good friends, um, Alex Slusky, called me and said, you know, I'm just getting, he's like, I'm just getting nervous about this market. I think you should take some capital, some institutional capital. And I thought, you know, I, I feel the same way. I, I, I should get on it. So I um, went out and I decided to break my own rule and actually raise venture capital. And we raised in, we basically closed our first institutional round of capital. So that's where we raised a couple million dollars. How, how were you able to do that if you, if you, if what you had to show for was a company that was getting no orders, you were losing money quickly, like why would a venture capital firm give you cash at that point? That's a great question, Guy. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great question. So the reason why they invested in us was uh, personal reputation. That was it. You know, I I delivered one thing successfully before, and this one brave investor uh, from IDG, now Ridge Ventures, uh, Alex Rosen, decided to take a chance on me. And that's it. That's the only reason. Hmm. And nobody else was interested. Do you think I don't want to? I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position, Marianne. But do you think that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, it's, that <laughs> sure. question, it's like that. But the way I frame <laughs> that question: Do you think if you would have been a man? There'd been no doubt. Oh, yeah, stationary sounds great. Here's the money. I think that if I were a man, I would probably 
have gotten a little bit more credit for what I had previously delivered. I think mm. the personal reputation effect of what had happened with E would have magnified. Mm-hmm. But I don't think stationery was very, and design was very interesting to a lot of male venture capitalists. And I, I don't think that um, when I say Silicon Valley doesn't have design confidence, I mean the investors in Silicon Valley don't really understand design and why it's important. So when you so explain the the business model. I mean, obviously you are selling uh, all of the stationery from from other brands, and so you would get a cut of that, and that would fund your business. That would that would that would bring in revenue. But also you had this crowdsourced um, these competitions from designers, and then how would that work? Like they would their their designs would be printed by you guys, and then they would get a cut of that. Well, the, the way it worked back then was that we had the stationary brands who were basically in a wholesale relationship where we would take the product and resell it and, and earn a cut. And we had the crowdsourced side where designers would submit and they would receive a couple of things. So they, first of all, they would receive peer critique and feedback from their peers. We, we built in a critique phase into the process, which was a benefit. And second, if they won, they would receive an upfront cash prize that was completely at our risk, meaning if the product never sold, they could still keep the cash. And then on top of that, if the product sold, they would receive a percentage of every sale. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the business model launched. But because the only thing that sold was the crowdsourced product and not what we spent the entire year launching, which was all the stationary brands, we actually made a hard cut over. And by Christmas of that year, we went 100% crowdsourcing. Wow. And so we turned it around. We actually decided to move into the holiday cards business at, against the advice of all of our investors who probably rightly said you should focus on what you started, which was wedding. We decided to ignore the advice, launch into holiday cards, and we were we had an exceptional first Christmas. I mean, we were so oversold. It, it was it, we had to actually shut off our marketing, our search marketing at hmm. one point because we were getting too many orders. So the that's when the company went through a huge increase in sales. So, so at what point did you decide to drop selling <laughs> other stationary brands? Yeah, so that was really rough because I had gone and sold, minted as a partner to all of these stationary brands, and I felt very ethically bound. Like, you know, I, I've made a commitment. I've, I've explained why we brought them on. And now instead, this crowdsourced design coming from unknown designers from all over the country is just taking off. And I felt very uncomfortable. And, mm. I, and I was lingering in that discomfort for many months. It took me at least nine months to say, we've got to cut and run. We're going to lose all the money we put into those building out those brands on our site. We've mm. got to just cut that and shed all of that work, all that money, and all those relationships. And we mm. need to completely pivot towards a crowdsourced model 100%. Uh, I, I'm assuming you had a lot of tough conversations with your um, partners. I did. But I think also they they understood why why tie themselves up selling online at Minted if, if that's just not what's working and the sales aren't happening. In the meantime, we couldn't print fast enough the work of the emerging designers who the customers themselves were picking. So as you start to gain traction those first few years, did any, I mean, did any competitors try to go after you? Yes. So it's 2013. 
We have two printers who handle all of our holiday card orders. One does 50%, the other one does another 50%. Mm -hmm. The first week of October, my cell phone rings at about 5 o'clock. It's the CEO of a much, much larger competitor. And um, they basically say, we want you to hear the news from us. We have bought this printing company of yours that that you use, you know, this this, this 50% player. And we'd love to talk to you about how we could continue supplying you with printing services through the holiday season. Hmm. Now, this is, mind you, two weeks from the start of the holiday season Ooh. when all of the, you know what, hits the fan, yeah. meaning you have to be prepared. You're, yeah. you're spending, you know, 10 months of the year preparing for this moment because yeah. the seasonality is so high for holiday cards. And um, basically, he said, you know, can you come in next week to talk to me and invited me in, I think, for like a 6 o'clock meeting, you know, the following week. So I went in for the meeting, and after a little bit of chatter, um, he said, we'd like to buy you. <laughs> we'd, like to, we'd like to buy your business. And I realized in that moment that that whole thing had been constructed to basically force us to sell our business. They basically bought that printing facility mm-hmm. knowing that you guys would be in, mm-hmm. like in a corner, backed in a corner. That's right. So what did you do when when he said we want to buy you? I mean, I mean, well, I was in his it. office, kind of stuck there. So I had to say something. So what I basically said was, well, let's talk about it. Let's how you know how would this work? And I thought in the meantime, God, I cannot. I got to get out of this meeting right now and call my, my head of supply chain, so he can and the engineering team, so they can work start working on this immediately. Like you know, I left the meeting and I called everybody. The team was waiting and we we had a conversation and they were racing around the country try to find uh, printers who would work with us. Did a part of you think that you might actually have to sell? No. I never feared that we would have to sell. Not once. I knew we would find a way around it. I just, I just, there's just no way I would let that happen. So what did you do? I mean, where did you go? So we found, um, we found another two printers who were gracious and enough to, uh, to take us on. And we, we call still inside the company. It's called Printer Get In at, at Minted, <laughs> uh, because the amount of work and hell our people went through to to do that integration at top speed was dreadful. I bet. It was dreadful. Yeah. And to this day, that that has left a taste in those people's mouths. You know, around this potential competitor that still I think is still there. You know. Hmm. And at at that time, I mean, when when they were going after you, I mean, there were other companies who were doing what you were doing, right? There, there were com- companies doing custom stationery that you could buy online. That's right. So the first generation of companies had been around that captivated people just by the sheer fact that they could make custom stationery for you at a decent price, right? That was just they were almost like an outgrowth of the printing and manufacturing industry, frankly. We came along with real design uh, vision and really tried to change that con- entirely into a branded, high-end European stationary product with lots of bells and whistles and really changed the, the industry. So that, yes, there were choices, but we felt the design could be better and more exciting. And then as this community, creative community, blossomed and developed, we realized that we were a creative community of all kinds of different people. Some people who were former lawyers. You know, there's an oil rig worker from Alaska. There's a um, plumber, a master plumber in New York City who's winning stationary challenges. There are all kinds of people who want to be creative and who want to earn money creatively. And Minted is a platform for these people to be seen and discovered. Is Minted a, a profitable company today? 
Yes, so we are in the low hundreds of millions of dollars in sales, and we are EBITDA, we're cash flow positive. Are you able to kind of just relax now and know and know that your business is fine, you will be fine? Like, can you go on vacation and um, disentangle, disassociate yourself from, from work for a week and not take calls? Like, is that, or do you still, are you still always thinking about the survival of your company? That's a great question because I think for the first, I believe it or not, five or even six years, even longer of the company, there was constant survivability risk, actually. Um, now I feel differently. I feel like the, the company, given that it's profitable, given that it's growing so well, it's a great feeling. And yes, I can breathe. This, this, uh, the uh, paranoid, paranoid immigrant mentality that I've, <laughs> I think, grown up with. Um, and then, of course, I've, you know, a couple of crashes in the, of the market. Uh, you know, it, it, it may, tends to make you a paranoid person. You tend not to forget any of this. It just it just stays with you. Um, but yes, I can I can now say that a yes, I can guy go on a, on a vacation for a week and not worry, maybe even two weeks and not worry at all. How much of, uh, of your success is because of, of luck versus uh, skill and intelligence and hard work? I think so much of it is luck. I mean, think about what would have happened if I had not been able to leave Iran, right? Mm. Um, how many people are in areas around the world where they can't escape uh, what the situation that their governments are creating for them? Think about all those talented people who won't ever have a chance. And, 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 and I guess I would say the other thing is just sheer wanting it very badly, right? I mean, there are, there are a lot of people who are smarter than I am. And I think it's just, I, I really focused in on something I'm happily extremely passionate about and love to think about all the time. And I would say that's luck and passion probably outweigh the, the raw skills. Mariam Nafisi, founder of Minted. Minted's also become one of the biggest crowdsourcing platforms for emerging artists. Tens of thousands of artists submit their work to the site each year, and only a tiny handful are chosen to have their artwork and designs sold on Minted. And please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, American Express. No matter what you do in business, from building a better mousetrap to building a better app, it's easier when you don't do it alone. The powerful backing of American Express. Don't do business without it. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for how you built that. And today's story comes from Lynn, Massachusetts, where two sisters have perfected a family recipe. I make the stuffings. That's Casey White. And I make the dough. And that's her sister, Vanessa. And the dough and the stuffing, 
They are for pierogies, those Polish dumplings filled with cheese and potatoes, sometimes sausage. Their grandfather used to sell them at the family deli in western Massachusetts. In middle school, I would go there on Saturdays and help pinch pierogies, and, and we always had them in our freezer, kind of like our Kraft macaroni and cheese, except they were we just had frozen pierogies. And when Vanessa and Casey went off to college, their mom would bring them coolers full of pierogies from the deli. And by the time they graduated, they were still eating them, and their friends were too. And sure, they could get pierogies at Trader Joe's or wherever, but who wanted those? There wasn't really anyone making pierogies like family used to make. And we finally said, it was one of those ideas where you're like, someone's definitely going to do this. And then we, we realized after a while that no one was really, we don't, maybe we should do it. Maybe they should make pierogies and sell them. Okay, so at this point, it was 2015, and Vanessa and Casey's grandfather was no longer alive, but he had written all of his recipes out by hand. So they went to the deli, and they got them. We brought them back to my house and caked my table (laughs) in flour. And so began the pierogi making. For 10 hours every Sunday, Vanessa would do the dough. It should be not too thick, not too chewy. And Casey would do the fillings. We started with three flavors. We started with potato and cheese, the pineapple and cheese, and sweet potato caramelized onion. Wait, I do not believe they grow pineapples in Poland. It is very strange. Yes, definitely not something you would find back in the old country, but it actually was one of their grandfather's recipes. Anyway, every weekend, Casey and Vanessa would make the pierogies, freeze them, and then sell them at the farmer's market in Melrose, Massachusetts. Moved to our first farmer's market with about 50 boxes and sold out in an hour and realized that there was a market. And one reason they were selling so fast? I think dumplings are the ultimate comfort food, whether it's ravioli or it's empanadas or it's... Asian dumplings, it's a very nostalgic food. So anyway, all that year, Vanessa and Casey would make and sell pierogies on the weekend and then go to their office jobs during the week. But there was a point where we had to go to the next step because we were just making only, you know, we could only make so much in that that long 10-hour day. We couldn't grow it unless we kind of took the leap of faith. So we quit our jobs. (laughs) And after taking that leap, The sisters moved their pierogi operation from Vanessa's house to a commercial kitchen in Gloucester, Massachusetts. They hired a few people to help them make more pierogies, but Vanessa, she is still doing the dough. Stretching it out, running it through the dough sheeter, and then cutting those circles, thousands of circles a day, (laughs) for the rest of our staff to fill and pinch. Vanessa and Casey call their company Jaju Pierogies. Jaju is the Polish word for grandfather. This month, they're about to open their first storefront in Somerville, Massachusetts. And by the end of the summer, they're hoping to sign a deal that would get their frozen pierogies into major grocery chains across the Northeast. And by the way, that pineapple and cheese stuffing, they no longer make it. Um, Apparently people don't like pineapple with their cheese. Like we went to Poland a few years back and neither of us saw pineapple on any menu. If you want to learn more about Jaju pierogies, head to our new podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. We love hearing from you. And thanks so much for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or hear a previous episode, you can go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. Please also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This. 
Our show is produced this week by Ramtin Arablui, who also composed the music. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Noor Kutsi, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is J.C. Howard. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. We live in a world, a country, and a moment in time where there's so much important news, and it is constantly changing. That's why Up First is here for you. It's NPR's daily morning news podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.